Blog Talk Radio. having a great Wednesday evening. Um, I know I am. Well, it's the best that I can be having, you know, with the situation that I'm going through, which I'm going to talk about here in a second. Um, first off, I do want to let everybody know of a programming change. We did have to push back 730 to 7.30 today because, well, real life coming to the mix. And I had to work today until about 6.45 because um, normally we go on the air at 7. I do want to let everybody know that next week I've got trash can trash can Graham on the show then the week after that i have brock landers on the show they will also be running at 7 30 um then after that all future shows will be on at on thursdays at seven o'clock and what you may ask why thursday well it's real simple my work schedule changed my days off changed so i've got to adjust for that and i don't and i mean i could keep it on wednesdays but I don't want to do the whole, you know, have to rush home every Wednesday, you know, to get everything ready, to get on the air. And, and it feels like if I do that, I'll be shortchanging you, my loyal customers. Um, I do want to let everybody know uh, that we're going to open the show tonight with a tribute. Uh, before we do the tribute, before I do, you know, I talk about the first topic of the night, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and get the sponsor out of the way. Off the Rails Radio is an official sponsored podcast of the great wrestling brand Collar and Elbow um, clothing line. Uh, what you could do is you could go to collarxelbowbrand.com. You'll use your promo code WING with capital letters, W-I-N-G, and you save up to 10% off your order, and I get a little bit of money thrown my way to keep this podcast running. Because we, this podcast is a podcast for the people, and we do this strictly for you. All right. So I want to go ahead and get into the main topic. Uh, as I, I touched on it a little last week at the beginning of that show, um, my grandfather, he fell last week. Um, we thought initially when I went to – he got transferred to Central Baptist last Wednesday night, actually during our show um, last week, and – we were under the impression originally that he was going to be able to come home, uh, that he was going to be woken up. And um, unfortunately, with his condition, he has cirrhosis of the liver, which which I'll be very honest, it was due to alcoholism, um, which was also the way my father passed away. Um, his body is so wrecked that they just, that he has a 30% chance of coming out of this. Um, they are pulling the ventilator off anytime between tomorrow and Saturday, and he's expected to pass. Um, it's, I ain't going to lie, it's, it's wrecked me. I've had a very rough week to the point where I almost thought about canceling tonight. Um, it crossed my mind for about five minutes, and then I realized my, my grandfather would not want me to do that. He would want me to keep going on and doing what I do, bring you this great, this great guest tonight, Kelly Boston, and just, you know, 
get my voice and the voice of Kelly out to the people where it should be. Um, so tonight, uh, I will let everybody know, you know, stay plugged into Off the Rails Radio on Facebook and my personal Facebook if you are on my friends list. I, I will keep you guys updated. I want to send a great thank you to all the people that have reached out to me in this time and have just given me your support, you know, from the from the people that I work with, Dustin Getter, Justin Miller, William Hendricks, Ryan Douglas, Terrence Williams, Matt Stray, uh, my girlfriend, Kimberly, Kimberly Gill, and everybody else. I mean, you guys and my little dog, Bear, who is sitting here watching me talk to the, essentially nobody, according to him. All you guys, if you get this, and wouldn't get through this without you and also without, you know, the, the strength and support of my family. Uh, thank you. I am indebted to you always, and just thank you. Um, I'm not going to dwell on this real long because what I mean, we've got Kelly. He's on the, he's he's listening uh, right now. I've got him, you know, on hold. He's listening that way. It doesn't, you know, there's no interference because sometimes there's some interference when I talk and somebody's just trying to listen. Um, but um, normally we take our break, our first break after about 15 minutes after I open the show. We're going to go ahead. We're going to head do a short break now. Uh, well, it's actually going to be a, a little bit of a long break. It's going to be about seven minutes. I'm going to play a song for everybody. I said it on Facebook before we went on the air that we're, tonight is dedicated. This episode is dedicated to my grandfather, Gerald Logan Merriman. Um, and the first he is, and if anybody knows him, he is a huge Chicago Bears fan. Uh, he, we talked a couple weeks ago, hoping that Chicago does well. Even though Chicago at times can look like my Cincinnati Bengals, they start well, but they just they they choke. Um, but uh, Super Bowl twenty was his favorite Super Bowl uh, out of all of them because it's the one the Bears won and they won a convincing fashion against New England, forty six to ten. Um, and the Bears did a little song, for, you know, right before that Super Bowl called the Super Bowl Shuffle. Uh, I was able to find it. We're going to play it tonight. Here it is. It's the Super Bowl Shuffle, and after that, I'll be back with Kelly Boston.
cause I'm no fool. I fly on the field and get on down. Everybody knows I don't mess around. I can break them and shake them any time of day. I like to steal it and make them pay. Please don't try to beat my hustle, cause I'm just here to do Super Bowl shuffle. We are the best. All right, that was the Super Bowl shuffle by the one and only 1985 Chicago Bears. So with that being said, we're going to go ahead and get to the main portion of tonight's broadcast. Kelly Boston, are you on the line with me, my friend? I'm here with you, buddy. All right, man. What did you think about the Super Bowl shuffle? It's good, man. It brings back some memories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It don't really bring back too many memories for me, mainly because I was like two years old when it happened. <laughs> but, man, yeah, I just I remember my grandfather. He had it on a tape with Super Bowl, and I would just when I was a kid, I would watch it religiously. I'd watch it at least once a week when I was over at his house. But, uh, <laughs> but man, how are you feeling tonight? Man, I, I'm good, man. Uh, my condolences to your family and, and for your grandfather. Uh, uh, I hope that turns out for you, man. I'll, I'll definitely have you on my prayer list and, and get the team at Isaiah House praying for you. Um, uh, that's It's always a tough time, man, to go through something like that. Yeah, I appreciate it, and I'm pretty sure my family does as well. I know some of them are listening in tonight uh, that I was getting some texts during the song. Um, they're saying that they were listening tonight, and they were so grateful that I was doing the tribute, um, which I – I didn't really plan on doing a tribute, but then as I was on my way home from work, I was like, I've got to do something for Pat Paul and I, and I'm right, glad I did. Yeah. Um, That's so, awesome, so we got you here. Um, we're going to uh, just, I want to warn everybody. We're going to talk about some things that 
are very personal. Um, Kelly agreed to be on the show because Ke- I know Kelly just through because we've been Facebook friends forever, and um, and I've kn- I know he shared his struggle that he's had in his life on there pretty openly as kind of like a warning sign to other people that may be out there. Um, so Kelly, I, the first question I want to ask, and we'll kind of go from there, is when did your struggle start? You know, um, you know, it's it's funny you say that because when when I first when I first decided to go public with it, you know, friends and family cringed and uh, they they weren't sure what to think about it. And I, I went through a tough time, and I thought, man, it, it's it's an epidemic. And if if I take my story, because you know, I probably am one of the least people anyone ever expected to have a problem with addiction. Um, so you know, growing up, I. There's no, there was no reason really other than I'm an addict by nature and it's a disease because I grew up in a, in a good home. I had good parents. You know, I had, I was a spoiled little brat. So, you know, I don't have a, well, my parents used or my parents divorced. I have no reasoning really, you know, so, and, and that's why I was like, you know what, I'm going to just come out about it. I mean, obviously I, I did some time, I, I did some time in rehab, so I disappeared and I was always a pretty public person anyway and. When you when you disappear for four years, people wonder, you know, what happened. So I just decided, you know what, I'm going to bite the bullet, and if I can help one person, man, uh, with this this thing we call addiction, then then I'm doing something right, and I'm doing something godly, and and that's what I'm here to do. So I did just completely go public with it. Um, you know, I've shared everything from mug shots to my testimony online. Um, I do these radio shows a lot. Uh, I speak at, at many events through Isaiah House, and some on my own is just community service. And uh, I've reached out to a lot of people, man, and, and, and now it's I'm the guy in Danville. If you're struggling, people tell you, hey, message Kelly Boston. And that's that's what I want to be. You know, I want to be that resource for people because it's, it's not something anyone likes to talk about or glamorize about. But, you know, if I can be that person, that's cool. Um, and as far as your question, you know, I, I was a normal kid. I, you know, graduated from Boyle County in 1999. I went to college in Louisville, um, and, and I dabbled. You know, we I played football in high school, so we we drank some beers, we we smoked some pot, nothing really major. And you know, I knew the people that did, and I was cool with those people, but I just I never did really get into anything harder uh, until I went to college. Um, when I was in college, I don't know if you remember this, but I used to actually work for WRSL radio station in Stanford um, all through my high school years, from like my freshman year through my senior year uh, I was a DJ at WRSO radio station 96.3 and uh, so when I went to college I, my parents set me up in an apartment uh, they got me a job at Sears in a loading dock and I was 17 years old when I turned 18 I had some you know some older college kids who were like man let's take you to Deja Vu the strip club in Louisville so I went and I, I was I was young I was timid I was shy I didn't know what to do but on the way out that night there was a posting on the door for a DJ. And, uh, you know, they, they joked about, you and you ought to apply for that. Well, I did, and I got the job. <laughs> so at 18 years old, I'm, you know, from Danville, small town, but I'm living in downtown Louisville, working at a strip club uh, and going to school. And I guess that was where I was really first introduced to anything harder than, than, than the normal kid stuff. Um, I got into a crowd that was using ecstasy, um, cocaine, things like that. And and honestly, I just dabbled for a long time. You know, we would get to go on weekends, we would roll, 
have a blast, uh, and then he was back to school on Monday. So I guess that's somewhere in the second second semester, 2000, I guess, somewhere around through there is when I really kind of dove into it a little bit. You know, I tested the waters, I guess you'd say. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, it all mainly started – so was it peer pressure or was it just, eh, I'm going to try this, see how it works, because I'll never be that guy. Because I know a lot of – of people that suffer from addiction, when you go into it, you, you're thinking, yeah, I'm not going to be that guy, that statistic that I, I see on TV or I see in school. Yeah. You know, I think it was just part of just being, you sitting in, you know, I, I was with some hot chicks and they were doing it and you know, I wanted, they were having a good time. It, it really wasn't like they pressured me. It was just, I went with the flow. I've always been that kind of guy that just, I like to do the life of the party. I like to have a good time. And that was the reputation I built, you know, while I was in school was Kelly Boston. Man, he, that guy loves to party, you know. And I guess I, I felt some type of way when people would say that, and it would kind of push me to go a little bit farther. Um, but, you know, I, I maintained good grades, you know, as long as I kept – when I was actually going, you know, I was doing well. Uh, but, yeah, it's just – it was just kind of what we did. It was Everybody was doing it, and I'm going to join in, and, and we're going to have a good time. So, and I never like, really thought. Like I remember people who were doing nerve pills and stuff, and I was I, I can remember thinking, man, I would never do stuff like that because they look awful. You know, they they feel awful. They look awful. I'm not going to go that route. And then I just dove in completely past that into the harder stuff. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, because when I was before I moved to um, Danville, I was I lived in Ohio. I was a um, I'm the son of an alcoholic and a pill and a pill uh, pill user, and which my mom's pill use didn't come till later in her life. She I know she'd always use marijuana, uh, but she always covered it up by ah a skunk just got sprayed somewhere, and um, <laughs> and my dad but he my dad was an out front alcohol alcohol drinker uh, beer and whiskey and anything he could drink that had alcohol in it was his thing. And when I went to school in Ohio, they had me attend a, a class called Alateen, uh, which I'm sure you've heard of. It's for the children of alcoholics. And it kind right. of teaches you about the, the, the addiction and about the path and, you know, and all that. Because they always told us that, like, draw, like, get a piece of paper, draw a line in the middle, draw a, a big line from one side to the other. Now, draw a line, you know, going down in the middle of that. Um, then draw a second line just really close to it. When you drink or when you use, they would said you would hit to that first line. Or no, I'm sorry, I got it backwards. Draw a line all the way out here, you know, to the very far end of the line you drew, like, you know, a, a big T. And you, you you take the first drink or the first hit of the hard, you know, hard stuff, and you'll go to that, to that line. That's your initial high. And you spend the rest of your time trying to reach that first high, but you always come up short. And that was how addiction grew. Is there any truth to that, or is it just straight, you know, it just changes your brain? Man, honestly, Tom, I didn't have any trouble. You know, that's the crazy thing. Um, you know, I dabbled in ecstasy, and, you know, I smoked pot, and we do coke occasionally. So it, it, it was one of those deals where, okay, this guy's got ecstasy, this guy's got good weed, this guy's got money for alcohol. Let's all get together and let's just party. And, you know, and then it was come 
sunrise, okay, everybody go home, go about your business for the week. I wasn't. It wasn't until later on in life where you know, and yeah, like I became the guy. Like I was, I would get clean for a little bit. You know, I would I would do really well. I'd get a job, I'd get a girlfriend, and then I would run into somebody who had like lower tabs. You know, and I was the guy that I would buy twenty lower tabs on a weekend, go home, do some lower tabs, go back to work Monday. wasn't a big deal. It wasn't until like two thousand. Gosh, 2007, 2008, when the Percocet 30s came out. Um, and I think that is the beginning of the epidemic. Now, once I started doing those, there was no going back to work Monday and not doing anything. Like That's when I really, that heroin, I mean, heroin-based substance is what hooked you. You know, the, the opiates is what really got me. Everything else was just purely recreational. Granted, I shouldn't have been doing it, but... I could always drop that stuff with a drop of a hat. But yeah. when opiates entered my life, man, that's when things change. And now what you just represented, that's a good definition of, of opiates. You know, like I, I feel like that is true when it comes to opiates. Because I remember um, when I first did them, so I was like, I had a guy that I would buy lower pass from occasionally. And uh, one day, I'll never forget this, man, I had just bought a BMW convertible. Uh, and uh, I wanted to show it off. It was lowered wheel. I mean, nice car. I had a good job. I had a nice car. And I would go and meet my buddy at Burlington Coat Factory in Lexington. <laughs> and I, I can remember this day playing like like it was yesterday. And I was going to get some lower tabs from him. He didn't have any. He's like, man, I've got something that you're going to like. And it's a Percocet 30. And he was like, I don't know if you know what that is or not. It's a tiny little blue pill um, that they give people like cancer, uh, anything with strong pain. Um, but it's a tiny, tiny little pill. I mean, it fits on the tip of your pinky. Um, and it was, you know, Lord Travis were like five bucks back then. Uh, this pill was $25, which was a big jump, you know. Um, but I was like, man, I'm not paying $25 for one tiny little pill. He's like, man, I promise you, just, you know, try it. And, uh, you know, I already had these plans to party that weekend, and this is all the guy has. I was like, man, I'll tell you what, give me one. Let me see what it's like. I'll let you tomorrow. And, uh, I did a half of it, a half of that tiny little pill, and I can remember clearly driving around New Circle Road, white knuckled, uh, just felt great. You know, time of my life, I went home, mowed the yard, sweating, just getting it. I mean, it's fast. It gave me this burst of energy like no other thing I'd ever experienced, and I felt great. Um I can remember getting done with the yard, and I, I went and popped up two Coronas on the front porch, and then I ended up getting sick off of them. Like, they were so strong, they would literally make you nauseous. Um, and then, but back to your drawing thing, so, like, in the days following that, like, that's how my addiction grew. So I would do one peel. I could do a half a peel, and then I could get there, I could do one peel. And then it was, well, if I don't have money to get two peels, I'm not going to do them at all. Or I would buy one and hold it until I, had, until I could find another one. Uh, and from there, it snowballed. Um, you know, at the end of the road for me, before I really just fell off when I was still doing the 30s, you know, I got up to doing 20, 25 pills a day. Wow. And that's mind-blowing, yeah. I mean, do the math on that, 20, 25 bucks a piece. And now these pills are now on the street value are going for $40, $50 a pop. Wow. So it's pretty much get your paycheck, turn around, find your guy, here's my paycheck, and there you go. And exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's that's how the opiate thing. That's how first, That's the first part of what grabs a hold of you. And, you know, it goes much farther than that. It goes to, 
you get your paycheck and you're paying for the ones he's fronted you when you got ah. the money and you got paid. You know, that, so that you, becomes an issue. And then, then later on, it's what are you stealing to, to cover that? You know, it, just, it, it snowballs, man. Yeah, yeah. because, I mean, you was talking about, you know, you would – when you was at, at at the peak of your addiction and right before the end – uh, well, not the end, but before, you know, everything settled and you, I remember you would always be online and then you would disappear because you would always, you would always show up in my feed, you know, just talking about something, sharing a picture or whatever. And then, yeah. and, cause like you said, you know, people were shocked when they found out. I mean, and I was one of them and I was just like, man, I didn't, I didn't, I just didn't see that from him. And I was right. like, well, I hope he, I hope he gets better. And um, because I I see a lot of people that are very judgmental towards addicts, and I am to a degree, uh, but I also have a lot of empathy and sympathy because I've seen it happen to my family. I've seen it happen to my friends. I used to hang with a big group of people, and we were all like best friends, and one by one, they started discovering drugs. And one by one, they would flake off. And to the point now, there's like one I talk to because he never used drugs. And I was that way either. I I mean, I've drank alcohol before, but I've never tried a drug. I tore up my knee back in 2014 in wrestling, and they put me on tramadol. And I accidentally took two one day, just on an accident. And it felt like, Mm. I felt like I was a bat and somebody went and smacked a tree with me, and I, I just kept vibrating. And, and right, I was like, right. how could people do this for fun? And, right. and so going back to your addiction, what would you say was your lowest point? Not your rock bottom, but the point where people would start to write you off at first, I guess you could say. <clears throat> Man, uh, there's there's so many of them because part of the thing with addiction is you don't want to admit it. You know, you're you're in complete denial. Um, but man, same instance is, is is what you said. You know, my little clique. We were we were the cool clique. We and and we stuck together from high school through college, after college, and it was our group. You know, our our guys and. It's sad, man, because I see I see some of these guys today, and I can't speak to them because I'm I'm living a sober life today, and they're not. But uh, you know, you I always use this analogy like there was a few times in my life, man, where I would look around the room at the people I was hanging out with and the places that I was in. You know, my parents were were middle class family. You know, I didn't want for anything. Um, we always lived in a very nice house. Uh, we, we always had nice things, and you know we, we were respectful people. We you know we weren't rich, but we weren't poor. Um, I always had name brand clothes. You know my parents bought my car, paid my insurance. You know I was pretty pretty spoiled kid, man. And I can remember like looking up sometimes, and I would be in like the dumpiest house, roaches crawling around, people nodded out like syringes, uh, or I would be driving down the road and I just look at the people like the company I'm with and like man if something was to happen to me right now if we were to get in a car wreck right now my parents would be so disappointed in me you know like people people would be blown away at what Kelly Boston is doing right now it's like it's sad when you're in a situation 
and and you're conscious enough to look around and think, man, this is not right. I should not be doing this. But the power of addiction and opiates, you don't care. Um, never in my life did I think I would be homeless, you know. Uh, there's been two instances in my life that I, I've truly been homeless. Um, one time, just in a vehicle. You know, all I had was my carload of stuff, and that was it. And nowhere to go. And, and that's when you see who your true friends are and, and who your, your fake friends are. Um, you know, the drug culture, they're, as soon as you run out of money and run out of resources to get money, they're gone, man. Um, you know, they, they scatter. And even my good friends, like I, I was one of those guys, man, I could, I could hang out with the, with the druggies, I could hang out with the preps, I could hang out with the jocks. Like I kind of intermingled between everybody. I got along with everybody. Um, and I've had a few really close friends, man, who have stuck by me. Now, at those times that I was homeless and they knew I wasn't doing right, they kept their distance, you know, and I'm glad that they did because there's a few of them that didn't, and at the time, you know, what comes with addiction is manipulation and lying and stealing and thieving, and uh, I burnt some good friends, you know, um, and I'm working on getting some of those relationships back, but it, it's, a, it's a process. But, uh, you know, I had one buddy that, that we've been friends since kindergarten, and he would he would call and check in on with me, and he knew I was, wasn't doing right. He knew I was lying to him when I told him I was. But, man, he was he was a true friend, and, uh, you know, he he never sent me money or let me stay with him, but he would just literally call just like, hey, man, I love you. I know, you know, get your life together. And, and that's that's how you know who a true friend was, man, you know. Um, but, yeah, that's that's the biggest thing is just, you are who you run with. I, that's, I know that's so cliche, and our parents teach us that growing up. But uh, that's it's a true thing, man. You know, if you want to be successful, run with people who are successful. You know, if you if you wanted to not do well in life, I mean, look, just take a take a personal inventory of things you're doing in your life and the people you're around in your life, and, and that's how you you can tell wh- which way you're headed up or down. Yeah. It's like me, me and my coworker was was out doing deliveries today for for our, for our job, and we was talking about pe- the decisions and people, you know, people blaming their decisions on other people. And I was like, I am a very firm believer that you are a product of the environment you create, because you have control over your environment. And if you don't want to get out of that environment, nothing in the world will make you get out of that environment. And uh-huh. And I mean, I believe that. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not an expert in addiction, but I believe the same holds true for addiction. You can't make somebody quit that don't want to quit, and because they're going to find a way to justify it in their head. And now, when was the moment that you knew you hit rock bottom? Man, you know, there. Golly, there were so many times that. I, I thought I was there, you know, and I guess the truth wasn't. Um, and it was a lull, man. I was in a lull for a long time. So, I think. So, um, I had, you know, I had a nice home. I had a fiance. We had a daughter. Um, and I was using, you know, it, it, it went from being social you know, my friends would meet, would meet up, and we would all throw in what we had, and we would have a good time. Then there became a point where it was we'd all get together, but then we're buying from each other and selling to each other. Like that was like the first stage of, of defeat and, and going down a bad path. And then it became where I would 
meet up with them, and I'd be like, I don't have anything, and I'd have a pocket full of thirty, you know. Um, and I guess you know Nicole, she she got tired of it. Um, she was going to school at Eastern, and I, <laughs> the day that she got her letter from Eastern saying that she graduated her, with her RN. I remember we were sitting in the living room. We were kind of you know, arguing, bickering each other, and she went to the mailbox, got the letter, and come back in. And she waves it to me. She's like, "I graduated college." I'm like, "Awesome, that's great." She's like, "And I'm leaving you." <laughs> you know, like she couldn't wait for that moment to have some kind of financial freedom to get away from me. And that was the scary part. Like I always landed good jobs. You know, I always made decent money. I was always able to provide. Um, but then there was a time where. I couldn't provide the same way I used to because so much money was going into drugs. Um, you know, when she left, I went from, uh, you know, a, a three, four pill a day user to a seven, eight pill, you know, double it almost. And, of course, immediately I'm back out trying to find a, a, a replacement, you know. Um, I was heartbroken, but I didn't want anyone to know. You know, as men, we're taught to not show emotion. We're not We're not. You know, I've got this. I'm going to make everything okay. And that was who I was. So immediately I get back out there and I meet another wonderful girl who, you know, we would later get engaged to and have a child with. Um, master's degree, just excellent, great job, uh, great career person. I get with her and, I, and with her I hid my addiction. You know, I didn't tell her um, until she finally found out. But, uh, you know, you, you start to – Deplete your funds. You start depleting your, your people that you know their funds. Then you start stealing for stuff. Uh, a, a very low point in my life, man, where uh, I committed a crime and uh, you know a felony. You know, at the time, I guess I didn't think it was a felony, but the 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 need to to get your next fix. And, and I know that sounds so cliche, like you don't understand what it's like unless you've been there. Um, with 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 opiates. You're extremely sick. I don't know how much you know about about opiate addiction. So when I could, when I would use, I would have an eight hour window until I begin to get sick. And by sick, I mean hot flashes, sweat, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, uh, to the point where you, you can't get out of bed, you can't sit still. I mean, you're in bed, shaking your legs, flailing. Um, it's it's. I would not wish that on anybody. Uh, and and you you start to have those, and then you you learn very quickly that okay, if I go use, this goes away, you know. So then, as soon as you use, like once you've lost your job and burn all your resources, then it becomes where you're still addicted. You you use, and as soon as you use, you're on the hunt to find the next money or the next pill or whatever it is you you know you're doing, and that's where the epidemic hits, man. That's where people are are stealing, you know. I never had a I mean I barely got pulled over. I had a few speeding tickets. Um but I, I ended up breaking the law and, and catching a five year charge. Um you know, I it, it's it's crazy how caught but like I would try to do better and then then the, the negative stuff that I'd done in you know in the dark time would catch up with me. But uh, you know, when I first got when I when I got locked up the first time, you know, I served four months and uh, went through extreme withdrawals in jail. You know, that's awful. Um, you know, that was a low point. Uh, I get out and, and start doing better, but I didn't have any any treatment. I didn't have any recovery. I, I wasn't going to meetings. I was just, I'd been locked up for four months. So when I get back out and hit the streets, I'm going to obviously fail. 
You know, and that's what's wrong with our judicial system is, man, people get locked up. You know, they everybody thinks, oh, he's been clean six months and he's good to go. No, he's not because he doesn't have any tools to stay clean. He's still an addict and he's just dry, you know. And they go back out there and then you, you've lost all your stuff, your resources, so you're homeless, whatever. Um, you're still an addict. So what do you do? You go steal stuff. You you rob people, you know, and, and bam, you're right back. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a revolving door. Um you know, after four months, I got out, got a job, uh, was doing better, and as soon as I heard the first person I worked with mention 30s, I'm like, oh, I like 30s. I want 30s. You know, and, it's, <laughs> and bam, I'm right back in the madness. Um, and, you know, then what happens from there? It leads me down the road of, of eventually committing more crimes, another felony, another five years in prison. Um, you know, that's it's just a, it's an endless cycle. People who are addicted to opiates or any meth, I mean, you know, I work for a treatment center now, and we we take all types. We take alcohol. We have people that come in addicted to kratom, opiates, uh, spice, heroin, everything. You know, they need treatment. You need a tool belt full of tools to maintain sobriety. Um, back to my, like I said, the, the friends I ran with, you know, most of us ended up in jail at one point or another, and some of us got out and went to treatment. Some of us cold turkey did and are faking our way through the the probation process, you know. Um, and I see some of them on a almost daily basis. And man, I've got so many good memories with these guys. You know, they were my best friends and brothers to me. And I see them, and like I'll be walking down an aisle in Walmart, and I see one, and I just kind of I throw a hand up, and then I turn around and go the other way. Because I know it, even with me being two years plus sober, if I was to get in a conversation with one of those guys and they pull something out of the pocket and it's right in front of me, then I'm going to be stuck with a decision right there. Mm-hmm. Am I going to maintain the sobriety thing or am I going to fall back into the track? Mm-hmm. So yep. I just I choose not to go around them, you know, and I hate that. And you know, until they're ready, I can't be their guy. Now they know I work for a treatment center. They know I'm. I'm a Christian now, and and that does keep them away so much. I mean, there's no better way to to keep an addict away than throw a little Jesus at him, watch him run, man. You know, so that I've got that as a safety net. But uh, you know, it's it's hard, man, because you you have some friends and and you see him and you want to say hi, but you got to keep your distance, bro. Yeah, because I've got somebody in my life, and they they um they did they made some bad choices. They did some time. She came out of it, and she stuck with the treatment, um, and she's clean today. And I'm I, right. And she, and she knows I, there's nobody proud of her than I was. And I told her when she when I would visit her, I said, the people that you know now, or that you knew that helped you get that stuff, you no longer know them. And at right. first, she kind of looked at me, and I'm just like, because if you go back to them. If you, you know they're my friend, yeah, they might be your quote unquote friend, but they're not going to help you accomplish what you want, and they're only going to try to tempt you to go back to the way you was. And that was right. a hard pill for her to swallow, but she swallowed it, and she's doing right. great today because of it. And oh. and it's a hard decision to make. I mean, it's 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 a hard decision to you know say, hey, I know I've known you forever, but I don't know you anymore. And right. And it's I, I get it. I mean, you don't want to upset the person that you know 
that is there, and you know you can't really try to talk them talk them to, you know, to your side of the fence. So you just have to make a, a personal decision to detach. Right. Right. And and you can't be helped until you're ready. You know, um, you know my parents. They tried to intervene a couple times. Uh, I can remember my dad had bought. Uh, I was I was doing real bad, and my dad knew it. My dad's like, you know what? I want you to come stay here for a week, and I'm going to get you clean. And I'm going to get you healthy. Because I mean, I, I mean, I'm a five ten, hundred and ninety pound guy, typically healthy, sober. Um, you know, I go to my parents, and I'm buck thirty, and you know, I look like hell, and. My dad's like, all right, you're coming here. Give me your keys. We're locking you down, and you're gonna, we're gonna get you healthy. And, and at this time, my parents didn't know anything about addiction. You know, they just thought, well, just quit. All you gotta do is not do them. You know, and, and it used to make me furious. And I wasn't ready. And I'll never forget. So I, I go stay with dad a couple of days. Now I'm sick as a dog. And I'm like, dad, I need a pack of cigarettes. I'm gonna run to the store. And uh, so I hopped in my truck, and I drove down to the gas station. Of course, I'm on my phone getting my guy to beat me, and I'm waiting for my guy to pull up. My dad's slick, man. He followed me to the gas station. He pulls up, and he's like, how many, you know, how many cigarettes? I was like, I'm just getting a pack of cigarettes. I'm sitting on the phone. He's like, let me see your cigarette pack. Well, I had a cigarette pack that had like a half a pack in them, you know. <laughs> he's like, get in your truck and get back to the house. You know, and I would go to any effort to get away to try to get something to, to, to you know, to get me feeling better again. But, uh mm-hmm. You know, they, my dad had bought a Escalade in Florida, and we, so he's like, we're going to fly down there, we're going to buy it, you're going to help me drive you back. That's going to eat up a couple of days, and, and you'll get you healthy. Nothing, there's nothing in this world I wanted to do any less than to be dope sick on a plane going to Florida and then, you know, 12, 14 hours of car driving back. But I, I did it because, you know, I, I didn't I didn't have a choice, to be honest with you. Um, but, and, and I did it, and I, I started to get over the sickness. But, man, you know, you get over the original physical symptoms in a week's time. Mm-hmm. But your mind is still clouded and fogged. And mm-hmm. and that's what my parents didn't understand at the time. So I did, I made the trip. You know, on the way back, I was feeling a little bit better. But as soon as I got in my car, what did I do? I went straight to the dope man. You know, and, and that happens so many times. You know, even the, some of my fiancés, they would, they would find out I was using, okay, well, we're going to get you through this. And they would do their best to help me, you know. And as soon as I could find a second to get away, I mean, and I would. And, and I was the guy that I lived in Bluegrass and the Shell Station. And I could see it from our house. And I would, I'm going to run over here real quick. And, you know, 18 hours later, I come back, you know, because it took that long to find what I needed to, to get well. Um, you know, so many instances like that where you just disappear or mm-hmm. you, you know, you it, it was it was awful, man. And looking back, there's just no way to live. Um, right. When I woke up in the morning, I would I would do pills before my feet hit the floor. You know, as soon as I got to work, or as soon as I got ready for work, I would get in my car. I would go to the dope man's house. I would buy pills. I would go to work. I would leave at lunch, go to the dope man's house, buy pills, go back to work. Uh, halfway between lunch and the end of the day, I would go get pills. As soon as I got off work, I would go get pills. Once I drove from Lexington to Dan, I would go get pills, thinking, okay, I'm going to buy these pills, so I'll have them in the morning. But I ended up doing those pills that night, too. You know, so the next morning, back up, back to the dope man. I mean, that ruined my life, ruled my life, you know, um, for a long time. Waking up sick, uh, you know, just 
it, the people you hurt, and that's what a lot of addicts don't understand, man. We put our families through a lot. You know, they have to be the, yeah. the innocent bystanders watching us just spiral out of control. Uh, it's 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 true. I call it madness, man. I mean, I was I referred to it as madness. When I was in the madness, this is what happened. Or why are you why are you paying these these court things? Well, when I was in the madness, you know, that's the only thing I know to say about it. Yeah, uh, that's truly what it is. But I'm a firm believer that if you're dealing with with addiction, you need especially opiates. You need to go to treatment somewhere. You know, now you can you can try to kick it on your own, but man, it's I literally for me to quit. I mean, I had so many. I did a geographical change, so I, I was I was here living in Danville, and just things weren't going right. I couldn't get out of the cycle. I was like, you know what? I left an entire apartment full of furniture. I loaded up a few clothes in a car and drove to Bowling Green and stayed with some friends and family. And I was like, I'm going to start over, and I did it. I went through several weeks of just misery trying to get off of the things. I got a good job down there. I was uh, the GSM at Goodman Automotive. Um, I thought, okay, I've got this thing fixed. Well, bam, I ran into people who are who drug dealers. Bam, I'm right back. I just took my addiction and moved to another county. You know, I went from Boyle to Barron. Um, it literally took me, Tom, being arrested and locked in a box uh, to detox. And to stay there long enough to get my mind right, you know, 100 days plus before I finally started seeing some clarity. You know, I could write letters that made sense. And truly, because you numb all your emotions. You numb all your feelings. You know, and that's what makes you able to hurt people that you love. You know, your loved ones that you steal from, that you rob from. You know, you do all those things and you don't feel it because you're numbing all that stuff. Once you get clean and sober, it's like, man... Look what all I did, you know, um, and and you have to deal with that stuff. And then I, I needed to go to treatment, you know, and I wasn't I, I wasn't court ordered. I literally had to beg the judge to court order me, which is ridiculous wow. looking back. Like I was obviously yeah. an addict, you know. I mean, I was a good kid who caught two felonies worth five years apiece. Um, I had a decade of time over my head, and they were going to just turn me out. You know, and, I, and I, I went to the judge. I was like, man, you've got to send me to treatment. And he denied me. No, you've been in jail for, I think I've been in jail for like eight months. They're like, no, you've been in jail for eight months. You're clean. You're sober. Like, no, I'm not. I mean, I am, but I'm not able to go out here and maintain it. Um, I was persistent, you know, which is, it blows me away. And I guess that, that was when I, I realized that I was I was at rock bottom. I, you know, I was going to come out of jail again after eight months, homeless, Um and I, I was persistent, man. Final thing, I just every time I get in front of the judge, send me somewhere, please. Send me I need treatment. And man, it's the it's the best thing I ever happened to me. Um, they court ordered me to treatment for six months, minimum six months. Um, and I ended up going to the Isaiah House for uh, the eight month program, and it, it truly changed my life. Now, where is the Isaiah House located? Is it here in Danville? It's actually in Willisburg. Willisburg, Kentucky. I, mean, I, I lived in Danville all my life. I'd never heard of Willisburg. Um, yeah, it's it's a small little Amish community. It's about forty five minutes from Danville. Um, okay. And it's what it is. It's a, it's a school building. You know, it was a, a prior elementary school uh, for Willisburg mm-hmm. Elementary. Um, I guess the building has had many many different things in it. It was a boys' home at some point. Uh, but Isaiah House acquires the property. Sometime in the, in the 
early 2000s, late 90s, I think. And uh, it's 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 a cool place. It really is. We've got I think about 88 men in the main building, and then there's a I guess when it was a boys' home, a doctor built his private home on the property, and and we nice. figure once once it went out of, out, um, we acquired the doctor's home. So we have a it's a mansion, man. It's like a five hundred thousand dollar house on the back of the property, and that is our Medicaid center. We call it Patricia's Place. Um, Patricia was a counselor that, that was there in the beginning, and she passed away. So they, they named the house after her. So we have a 16 – it's a house that we house 16 people, 16 men in. Um, so basically, if you are struggling with addiction and you're at your wit's end and you have Medicaid, we can bring you in at no cost, and you can go live for the first 28 days at Patricia's place. Uh, and that's what I oversee today. That's part of my job. I oversee that place. Um, but you got 15 brothers that live with you in a house, and we we do like a intro to Christianity. Man, you know, we 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 wake up in the morning, we we exercise, we clean the house from top to bottom, we eat breakfast, we go to worship. You know, we we watch some some worship videos, and we we worship. Uh, and we do the the new contemporary Taya Smith, Lauren Daigle, Crowder, uh, you know the popular. And when I came there, man, I didn't know a single Christian artist. Didn't couldn't tell you a single thing. Couldn't tell you a single Bible verse. You know, I right. went to, to church on Easter and Christmas with my grandma, you know, just to get her off my back. Right. Uh, but we we do that, and then you have we do celebrate recovery. Um, we do individual counseling groups with a licensed clinician. You have like several hours within a day. Then you have one-on-one counseling with clinician. Uh, we do uh, family counseling, peer support. Man, it's it's a really cool place. Um, you live in a, in a like I said, in a mansion, and uh, you pretty much just hang out there. You go through these places. We do about forty-five and three-quarter hours of actually clinical groups a week. So it's like a full-time job. You know, it's yeah. not just hanging out. Um, you do that. Uh, on weekends, man, we we take the guys somewhere, and that was a big thing for me. It's like, have uh, you ever heard of Cart Country in Shepherdsville? It's like a go kart track, arcade, uh, bumper boats, batting cage, pretty little cool little place, man. Um, but we take the guys there. You know, uh, that's one of, one of our places that we go to. And prior to coming to Isaiah House, if I was going to go to Shepherds uh, to Cart Country with a group of guys, I would have needed a cooler beer in the car. I would have needed ten thirties. I would have needed a hundred bucks. You know, we went there and party and have a great day. Well, being sober and doing it with with some buddies sober, like that was a learning curve for me. Like, okay, I'm going to go do something with a bunch of guys, and I'm going to do it sober, and I'm still going to have fun. Like that was the kicker. Like, I can still have fun doing it. Um, but yeah, we take the guys out, man. We teach them to, you know, hey, you can go out with a bunch of guys, with a bunch of your brothers, and have a good time and do it sober. Uh, so, you know, every weekend we take the guys somewhere for a day trip. Uh, we go camping. We go bowling. Um, you know, we do a lot of cool stuff. Um, so you do that for the first 28 days. And then if you feel like you need to stay long-term, get some long-term treatment, or if you – like for me, I was I, I was homeless. I came straight from, from the jail to Isaiah House, and, and I didn't have anywhere to go at the time. I had lost my relationship with my family, my friends, I had burnt pretty much every bridge that I could that I could cross, so I needed to stay long term. So I, you, after 28 days, you transition next door uh, to the school building, and there you go through uh, the first hundred days of of you know treatment, 
Uh, kind of the same thing as a Patricia's place, but it's a little less intense. You kind of you, you build your way up through phases. Um, mm-hmm. At 100 Days, Isaiah House, we find you a job. We have partnerships wow. with Inowak in Springfield, Wilbert's Plastics in Lebanon. Uh, we have a, our own companies, which are Isaiah 58, which is a construction crew. We have Clean Cut Lawn Care, which does um, beautiful landscape work. We mow yards. We actually have a contract with Mercer County Schools and Danville Schools. We do all their all their properties. Um, so you, you leave Isaiah House. Who comes to rehab? And then mm-hmm. you leave with a full-time job. That's your job. Like, you get to keep wow. that job. Um, so after 100 days in the program, you, you get a full-time job, and you actually earn a paycheck. And that paycheck gets banked into a savings account. So at the end of eight months, once you complete the program and graduate, we mail you a check for what you've saved. It's wow. pretty cool, man. Uh, yeah, I and mean. This gives you, yeah, this gives you the opportunity to put a, a first month's rent down on an apartment. Buy you a cheap car, um, and then the, the, even better than that, we have I think nine sober living houses right now. So basically, we, we rent houses in the community. Mm-hmm. At the end of once you've completed the program, but you, you're still not really ready to get back on your feet. We have nine sober living. So basically, you'll move into a house. You'll have your own bedroom, but you'll share a kitchen, living room, stuff like that, and and you can live there for a hundred dollars a week. Uh, we cover utilities, water, all that kind of stuff. Um, you just you, you pay Isaiah House weekly, and you can live there as long as you want to. Uh, and this gives you time to continue saving money, you know. Um, so I kind of tell you, I'll tell you my path. You know, I went through, I, I went through Patricia Place, I went through Isaiah House, I worked for Isaiah Fifty Eight for a little bit, and then winter came, so I went to Wilbur's Plastics. Um, at this point, you know, I'm two hundred days into the program, so I'm a I'm a beginner Christian. Um, they teach me, they tell me regimen, you know, you wake up, make your bed, you do chores. So like I, I have a regimen, I have a schedule. So I, I implemented those things into my job. You know, I started out at Wilbert's as just a regular factory employee. Um, I think it's like ten seventy five. dollars I mean, it's pretty decent money, but, uh, yeah. for, especially for a recovering addict. But, uh, I started the factory. Um, I was doing a good job. I had a good work ethic. I was back to myself. I was thinking clearly, um, so I put in for the promotion. I became an offline operator. Within 90 days, I was a team leader at Wilbur's Plastics, still wow, in rehab. That's awesome. That yeah, is awesome. um, yeah, making close to 20 bucks an hour. Uh, so I, after I graduated the program, I moved to Sober Living. Uh, I lived in Sober Living from January until June. Continued saving money. I bought me a little $400 car, <laughs> and I, I drove it for a little bit. You know, and it was the first time I, in, in probably a decade that I had a car with insurance and tags. <laughs> I mean, um, it, that was a big thing. Um, I got a cell phone again. You know, I got back out there a little bit. Um, and then in June of this year, I actually got my own house in Springfield. I've, you know, gotten better cars and furniture. You know, and now um, I went back to, once I graduated, I went back to Isaiah House, and I work full-time. Um, now I oversee Patricia's Place. I'm the financial account manager for all of Isaiah House, and I work nice. in NPR as well. So uh, it's crazy, man, that you can be homeless, be at, at rock bottom, go to a place, not only seek treatment, but get set up for the future. Correct, yeah. Because you see a lot of these, these rehabs that they – like, it's almost like a conveyor belt or a product line. 
that you enter in, and they just do their best to push you out as soon as possible. And what well, I call Isaiah, 30, 30, 30 day turning birds, is what we call them. And because I've read about it, because you know, with me being in, involved with wrestling, there's a lot of history of addiction with wrestling, and you just see a lot right. of guys. Oh, they they went to rehab for 30 days, now they're out, and and of course they tell everybody they're doing great, but you know most time they're really not. And right. now, when you graduated Isaiah House, and you had flipped the flipped the script on your entire life, there I I'm a big fan of TV shows. I, I, I if you know, if I if I'm at home, I'm usually watching a TV show, and one of my favorites is Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and there's a scene with a character named Angel and Faith where Faith had killed a man and Angel's trying to rehabilitate her. And she was like, I've changed. I've changed. Why can't people just accept this? And he said a, a quote that I believe applies to addicts or in anything else that you're trying to change in your life. Just because you're ready to change your life doesn't mean the world is ready for you to change your life. Meaning right. you, you've burned people so many times that it takes a little while for people to believe it. Right. Uh, now, no, that's, have, that's dead on. That's dead on? That's what I thought. Dead on. And, I, and I'll tell you a story about that. And, and this just came, you know, so many guys, like, they come into Isaiah House, and two weeks in, they're, they're feeling better. They think they're clear-headed. They're like, oh, I've got, okay, I'm, I'm good. I got this. No, you don't. And that's when we had to really pump the brakes for them. Um, 30 days, it was not enough healing for my family, you know. 30 days wasn't enough healing for my child's mothers, for my children. Um, staying long-term is not only beneficial for the client, but it's beneficial for the client's family. Um, and I can tell you, uh, this, is, this is crazy. So my parents had gave up on me there, you know, for an end. We didn't get too much in my store, but, man, it, it was bad. It was ugly. Um, basically, if it wasn't bolted down, I'd steal it there at the end, you know. Um, and my mom would, if I was at her house, their thing, I mean, at the end, I wasn't even allowed in the house. You know, they would they would have a cookout, and I would go over there, and they'd have me a plate made on the porch. You know, and I was tired of being fed like a dog, you know, but that's what I deserved because that's what I had warranted my behavior to, to deserve. But uh, I can remember my mom getting up and taking her purse to go to the bathroom, you know. Um, and so when I went to Isaiah House and, you know, I got baptized and started, you know, to, to give this Christianity thing a shot because I saw people around me doing it, and I saw their lives improving, and I wanted a little bit of what they had, you know. So I gave it a shot, and my parents, sure enough, man, my parents started to, to, to write me, to send me photos. Um, I had a, after 30 days, you get a four-hour on-site visit. Uh, my parents flew in from Florida and came and saw me. And uh, that was the first step. Well, each month you get a visit. So the second visit was a, a six-hour off-site. So I get to, I get to leave Isaiah House for six hours. And uh, my parents are, what do you want to do? You want to go out to eat? You want to go shopping? I was like, I just want to go home. You know, I haven't been home. I was incarcerated for over a year. Uh, I didn't really talk to my parents for about a year before that when I was doing bad. Um, I've been in Isaiah House for a while. You know, so I was like, I just want to go home, you know. And that's what I did. My parents took me home, and I'm just kicking it with my parents, spending some quality time. I mean, in totality, it had been like four years, you know, since I really spent any good, clean, sober time with my parents. And we had a great day. But uh, I, I saw my mom get up and go to the restroom and take her purse with her. And in my mind, like, I don't know if she understands the impact that that had. I was like, oh, well, they, they don't think I'm any different. You know, and it was very discouraging for me. 
Because um, I thought, oh, well, here I am going through all these emotions. We're having this great day. My parents still think I'm that same person. It, it was, it was, it, it hurt me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, as time went on, as as months went on, and you know, I, my parents began giving me a little bit of trust. You know, and I would see them not be so guarded around me, um, and things got to be better. And they got to see, you know, as I became more of a Christian, you know, and my my behaviors changed, my language has changed. Um, I wasn't so symptomatic, you know, if something didn't go my way, I would blow, you know, it, I changed my, myself. And um, it's taken time. You know, I've now been at Isaiah House for 17 months. And I told the guys this, this today. I was like, you know, over time, it got to where I, I would notice my mom wasn't taking her purse to the bathroom anymore. And this is the craziest thing. So now, And I still stay tight with my parents. I talk to them every day. Um, on the weekends, I try to go see them, do something with them. Um, on Friday nights, usually I'll, I'll go to Danville and, you know, I'll, I'll go see my parents and, and we'll go to dinner or something, you know, and I spend some quality time with them. Well, Friday night, I, I took my parents to Somerset and we went to Ruby Tuesdays to eat. And, you know, keep in mind, this is 17 months of time. My parents were getting ready to go to the salad bar and they, they both stood up and I stood up and my mom said, oh, are you going? And I was like, well, yeah, why? I can wait. And she's like, well, I was gonna. I was gonna. I don't want to take my purse with me. I was gonna leave it here. And I was like, "Well, I'll wait." And my mom put her purse down and went to the salad bar. Now, to most people, that's so so. You know, it's nothing. It's it's just being normal. But for an addict, and from being where I was, you know, where I wasn't even allowed in the house, to that was a big deal for me. Like my mom truly knows that I'm not gonna go through a person robber while she goes to the salad bar which is terrible, yeah. but in times past, I might have done that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it took 16, 17 months for that to happen. And that was – my mom probably doesn't even know that. I haven't told her, but if she listens to this, she'll figure it out. But that was a milestone in my recovery still. And I feel yeah. each, 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 each day little things in my life continue to happen. And I can look back from who I used to be and think, man, that's changed. That's different. I like that. You know, and that's what strives to keep me going forward. Yeah, because, I mean, that level of mistrust was something in your previous life that you had earned, and you just have to, you have to work through it, because a lot of people, you know, like, ah, you're going to think I'm still doing this, ah, might as well go do it, you know? Exactly. And, and which is the most foolish way you could think about it, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so I want to dive into a subject that with addiction is a little bit controversial. Um, it's kind of it's the nature versus nurture type thing. It's disease versus choice. A lot of people right. believe you know you make the choice to use it, which I believe that initially you and you you make the choice to initially start. Um, but then after a while, your body I believe your brain changes, and then it, right. it begins to snowball to where there you are at rock bottom. Uh, and then some people believe it's disease. You have no cho- no say in the matter on using and a lot of people I, I see they use the disease type thing as kind of an excuse. Ah, you can't be too mad at him. He's got a disease. And I mean, oh, he's, he stole for me to fund his habit. I'm, I'm pissed at him. And now what is your thoughts on that? Man, I, I'm kind of on the same train as you, you know, I did have that choice to initially pick up. Um, and by making that choice, put me in a situation where I was. Now, once I made that choice a few times, at some point, something clicked in me where it was no longer a choice. 
You know, once I became addicted, I feel like it became a disease because, man, I don't care who you are. I would have done whatever I would I would have I would have done whatever it took to get my next fix. Like I mean I, I do I I was a thief. You know, I'm not a thief by nature. I'm a good person by nature. I would do anything to help anybody. And I think that's part of why I do this stuff now is is to give back because man I took from so many people for so long. Um so if I can do my part in giving back to help another addict to help someone not make the same mistakes I did or to save them earlier, you know? Um but, yeah, I truly believe addiction is a disease. Now, does it fall in the lines of a typical disease as, as, as everything else is, you know, <laughs> cancer is a disease, diabetes is a disease? You know, like, when yeah. you look at it from that point of view, I, I totally get where it's argumentable. But mm-hmm. at some point when you use drugs, your neural pathways, like your, your, your pathways in your mind change. And they start firing in different orders, and it changes your your body chemistry and your in the whole way you're thinking. You know, once that's changed, yes, I truly believe it is a, it is a disease. Um, and if I don't maintain this path, if I don't if I don't maintain my my spiritual life, if I don't read my Bible every day, if I don't go to NAAA meetings, and some people get blown away when I say that because I work for a treatment center. But that's not my recovery. You know, when I'm there at work, I'm there to help other people. So I still have to go to meetings. You know, um, I go to Recovery Roadhouse in Danville. I go to the College Club in Springfield. I go to Celebrate Recovery uh, in Harrisburg. I go to NAAA in Anderson County in Lawrenceburg. But I, I have to continue to work on it to maintain it. You know. Um, so there, therefore, I do feel like it's a disease. If I, if I don't do the things that I know that the addicts are supposed to do in order to stay clean, my addiction will take back over again. You know. Um, so yeah, I, I firmly believe it is a disease at some point. Now, you know, people can argue that man. There's, there's nothing worse than to post that on Facebook and watch it just take off. <laughs> oh God! And, and people uh, are like, you know, <laughs> people are like ready to. You know, end friendships over it, and I'm just like, right. it's good to have a debate, but my lord, at least keep it civil. <laughs> right, and that, that's the thing, man. Like, even though I am an advocate for addiction, um, I steer away from from those kind of conversations as best I can. Um, I'm here to as I'm here as an addict trying to help another addict. You know, uh-huh. I and I, and I can I, I'm successful at it because you know what I've been there. I know what you've done. Um, I'll never forget, man, when I, when I first got the treatment, I still had this thought that I was still who I used to be. Like, um, I still, I don't, I don't know, like, I didn't want to fully admit that, okay, my life is unmanageable. I have a problem. I was in denial. I guess the first day, steps, you know. And I'll never forget this, man. Um you know, I was looking around at some of the guys that were there in treatment with me. I'm like, I'm not as bad as that guy. You know, I just I put myself on a pedestal. And the, there's this kid who was working as a house, uh, as a house manager. He was kind of a hippie-looking kid, but he knew the Bible really well. And he walked in, and he sat down Indian style in front of me. He's like, you know what? I'm a piece of shit. And seeing a guy who was supposed to be my mentor sit down and say that, and, and him saying, you know, I'm a thief. I stole from, I steal from, from, you know, and he just broke it down. And I can remember sitting there thinking, you know what? I'm a thief. I'm a liar. 
I'm a cheat. Like, as a man, to openly admit that, man, there's freedom in that. You know, like, I'm I'm just, I'm a shell of a human being. And now it's time to, like, figure out why I was doing those things and rebuild. So, man, I'm not any better than anybody. You know, you go to some of these meetings, if, if the people are out there and they're, and they're thinking about maybe just trying NAAA, you walk in and there's some people, well, I've got 15 years cleaning, I'm better than you. No. They're not. They're misguided. They need to work on their own recovery. Man, I am no better than the person still out there using. And I am one bad decision from being that person out there using. And I know this. And so I'm compassionate for people, man. I know where they've been. You know, I know exactly where they're at. And I know where they, they can go. Um, so I don't care. You call it a disease. Call it a choice. Man, I'm going to love these people through it and, and try to get them on the right track regardless of, of what they're what their feelings of it is. Um, most people who want to debate this are people who are not addicts, <laughs> you know, right. have never experienced or has never touched their life. They're the ones that really like to go just full force mm-hmm. into the thing. Yeah, because when I would talk about it, I would talk about from what I've seen with my parents. And right. because my mom was my mom was a tragic story. My mom used pills. Uh, she used the opiates, kind of similar to your not similar, but pretty much the same. Uh, she started, you know, she started burning people. She burnt me. She burnt my brother. Um, which she never, she never really stole from me. She would, you know, she would go get these, like, use my, because she had my original Social Security card and my brother's, and she went and got a bunch of bills in her name, and then just wouldn't pay them. Uh, which wow. I know that's not really, you know, she's not using that to go you know, get her fix, but, you know, it played into it. And I, at one point, she actually moved to Kentucky, You trying to kind of use it like you did where with the, the trip to Florida. Um, going to come down here, get clean, because my grandfather, you know, while he would drink a little bit, he, you know, no drugs in the house. And it worked for like a month and a half. And she eventually, you know, fa- started working at Office Depot and Walmart, and she eventually found somebody that used down here, and the cycle repeated itself. Till my grandfather, she started stealing a bunch of stuff from my grandfather. Uh, she sold her my her grand her mom's like rings and stuff from when she was deceased and pawned them to get her next right. fix. And right. she moved back, and a co- it took a couple years, but I got to the point myself where I was just done with her. I didn't want nothing to do with her anymore. My brother was there, and while and I didn't know it because I I mean I would talk to her when she would call, but I wouldn't go out of my way. Um, and if I did talk to her, it was like, you know, a couple minutes, Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Love you. Bye. And I didn't know she got clean on her own and I didn't. And then she got double pneumonia. Well, when she went to the hospital, she did, well, she wouldn't take any medicine because she was afraid she would relapse. And that decision, unfortunately, ultimately cost her her life. Um, because the, the the pneumonia went to spread the double pneumonia, and then it just engulfed her lungs so bad, and the, the damage that was done to her body through her years of drug use was so bad, she didn't stand a chance, and wow. and it's some guilt that I've you know I've shared with a couple people. The last phone call I had, they was getting ready to medically induce her into a coma so they could clean her lungs, and I was so short with her because I didn't know she was clean, and really. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was, oh, no, it'd be all right. Yeah, you'll be awake in a couple of days. Uh, 
and call me when you get out. Just let me know you're okay. All right, bye. And it was one of those things that I didn't know it was the last time I would talk to my mom. And my mom passed away a week later because her body was just so racked she couldn't recover. And I found out after the fact that she had gotten clean, and it just it destroyed my world. I was like, yeah, I talked, sure, I yeah. treated, I treated my mom that way. But at the same time, I was so proud of her because she got clean on her own. Right. Yeah, that's that's that is definitely commendable, man. Uh, I I could not have gotten clean on my own. I just I I, I can openly admit that but today. She um, did it through a rehab place. I mean, she didn't just like quit. Oh, yeah, but she made the decision to get clean on her own. It wasn't That's forced cool. upon her by a judge or something like that. Right. That's, that's good stuff, man. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we're gonna what we're going to do right now, Kelly, is we're going to take a small break. Uh, I'm going to play the second song, and then we're going to open the phone lines up. Um we may take some calls like last week I you know with Ryan Douglas talking about a firefighter I sure I I sure, I'm sure he would get some calls if we don't get calls that is fine um we'll get some call we'll we'll open the phone lines up to make some calls and then we'll you know we'll we'll have some parting quotes and then we'll hop off here man um Sounds good man All righty everybody just stay tuned uh we'll I'll be back here in about 4 minutes uh, as I as as I said at the beginning of the show, this is a dedication. This entire show is a dedication to my grandfather, Gerald Merriman. Um, the first song we played was the Super Bowl Shuffle from the 1985 Chicago Bears. Uh, this song, I'm, I know he hasn't passed yet, but we're pretty much counting that it's happening. So what we're going to, I'm going to play, it's, a, it's from a, the Fast and the Furious movies. It's the song from Fast and the Furious 7. It's by um, Wiz Khalifa. I think that's how you say his name. And Charlie That's right. <laughs> it's called See <laughs> You Again, everybody. We'll be back here in a short minute. It's been a long day without you, my friend. And I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. We've come a long way from where we began. Oh, I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. When I see you again. Damn, who knew? All the planes we flew, good things we've been through. That I'll be standing right here talking to you about another path. I know we love to hit the road and laugh, but something told me that it wouldn't last. Had to switch up, look at things different, see the bigger picture. Those were the days, hard work forever paid. Now I see you in a better place. See you in a better place. Uh, how can we not talk about family when family's all that we got? Everything I would do, you were standing there by my side. And now you gon' be with me for the last ride. Without you, my friend And I'll tell you all about it When I see you again We've come a long way From where we began Oh, I'll tell you all about it When I see you again When I see you again
away and the vibe is feeling stronger with small turn to a friendship a friendship turn to a bond and that bond will never be broken the love will never get lost and when brotherhood come first and the line will never be crossed established it on our own when that line had to be drawn and that line is what we reach so remember me when i'm gone can we not talk about family with family's all that we got? Everything I went through, you were standing there by my side. And now you gon' be with me for the last ride. Let the light guide your way. Yeah. Hold every memory as you go. And every road you you my friend and I'll tell you all about it when I see you again we've come a long way from where we began oh I'll tell you All right, that was Wiz Khalifa with See You Again. All right, so we're going to open up the phone lines. Uh, the phone number is 606-716-4264. Uh, if you got any questions, you got any questions for um, Kelly, now it's time to call in and ask. Um, now, once again, the, the phone number is 646-716-4264. Uh, I will post it on my social media accounts. So if anybody wants to call in, feel free to call in. Got a question for him? You got a question for me? It doesn't matter. Um, the phone lines are open. Now, Kelly, if if, if there is a somebody that knows somebody that is an addict here, and they're they're wanting to reach out to them, um, what is your best advice to them? Man. It's it's tough, you know. Um, you can't force someone to treatment, you know. I mean, you can, and it happens on a daily basis. But until they're ready, they're 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 not going to be willing. Uh, the best thing, best advice I have is don't enable them. You know, don't give them money. Uh, that was that was a, the turning point for me when I when I finally reached a point where people would no longer give me money. Um, and they were guarded around me, and you know, like that that was helpful. It, it was painful at the time, you know. Um, and there was a couple times where I went to my family. It's like, look, I need to go to treatment, and my parents didn't understand. They they didn't understand addiction. They they just thought I could quit, so they weren't willing to help me. Uh, there are resources out there, like I said, um, and Isaiah House. You know, if you have Medicaid, we can bring you in at no cost. Uh, if you have a job, if you're still maintaining employment or have COBRA or, you know, commercial insurance through your employer, you can come in at, at no cost besides your deductible and, and your co-insurance. Um, okay. Private pay, you can come in with that too. Uh, but 
there, there's resources out there. There's help. There's meetings. Recovery Roadhouse in Danville uh, is, is a good place. There's a lot of good people there with with, with clean time, and, and they're, they're pure in heart, man. There's there's people there with 25 years of, of clean time who are still willing to help the addict out there struggling. Um, just turn and, and ask people for help, you know. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of a waiting game, man. Until they're ready and willing and, and ready to, to, to talk about it, there's not much advice I can give the person. Um, I guess my thing with this whole, this whole deal tonight was if there's anyone out there who is struggling with addiction, um, you know, and I take my I, I go to bed every night at eleven thirty midnight, and I wake up in the morning at six a.m. and I've got two or three messages every night uh, from somebody. You know, people some people I know, some people I don't know. And it's always funny. Uh, I tell my mom this the other day. Like I'll get messages from people who that I know, and they're they'll I haven't talked to them in ten years, and they'll just hit me up and be like, "Hey man, what's going on?" And it'll be like small talk. Most of the guys, you know, they don't want to just come out and say, "Hey, man, I see what you're doing, and and I want I want help." They'll they'll just try to, just, you know, "How you doing, man? What's been going on?" And I don't know. Like, man, I haven't talked to you in five years. Why are you hitting me up late at night? And so right. usually I'll, I'll I'll go along with it for a minute, and then I'm like, "Look, man, are you doing okay? Are you struggling with something?" And then bam, they'll they'll open up and, and tell me, and and I'll and I'll do everything in my efforts to get them in. Even if it's not Isaiah House, I'll help you get in somewhere else um, or, or guide you in the right direction. But uh, if you're out there and, and you're, if your life is unmanageable, you know, if if you need help, man, just ask somebody. Reach out to me. Reach out to Tom. Um, hit us yep. up on social media, whatever platform that you're comfortable with, man. Um, you know, I'll give you my number to post. Uh, call me directly. And uh, – it just it, it's it's simple. Just say, you know what, I've been struggling with this. Um, I don't care if it's just pot. I don't care if it's alcohol, nerve pills. I don't care if it's prescription medication, whatever. If if you feel like your life is 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 not going the way it should, um, or you know if if you just lack some spirituality, like that was the turning point for me. Is when I decided to lay it all down, give it over to somebody else, be real honest with myself. Like that was the key. Uh, be real honest with who I am and what's going on with me and admitting, you know what, this is not the life I set out to have. I need some help. Um, you know, I'm here for you. Uh, I'm sure Tom's there for you too, and, and we'll, we'll guide you in the right direction. We'll, we'll get you some help. Um, and, it's, it's man, it's not the end of the world. It's temporary. You know, I, I wish, I so wish that someone would have came to me and offered genuine help earlier in my addiction. Um, and it hasn't taken me long, you know. Literally, in March, May seventeenth, two 2016, I was released from the detention center. I had the clothes on my back and a clear garbage bag with a Bible and a T-shirt and a gray sweatshirt. And I'm not joking. Um Luckily, I had an old friend who had started writing while I was locked up, and she helped me put me up in the hotel room for the night um, and and helped me get into the Isaiah house. You know, and my life is so much better now. I have genuine friendships with people who are clean and sober and doing the right thing. Um, I have a Christian friends. You know, tomorrow night I will be speaking in Harrodsburg at Southside Christian Church at Celebrate Recovery from 6 to 8. Um, I'm going to be telling my story a little bit more in depth there um, for about an hour. We will eat at 6 o'clock, 
and then I will tell my story and we'll do a little worship. Um, and, and you watch my social media, I'm somewhere speaking all the time. Uh, this is yeah. the third time I've spoken in the last two days. Um, you know, there there is help out there. Just ask for it. And, uh, man, we'll, we'll we'll do what we can to get you somewhere. Yeah. It's like it's like all these people out here that's within the sound of our voice. If you know somebody that, you know, is, is struggling and they're not listening live tonight, my show is always available for download. Uh, just look on my social media, click the link. It'll take you straight to the page, and it'll give you the option to either listen to it there or download it for later. Uh, and it costs nothing to download this podcast. It costs nothing to listen to it live. Um, and let the play it for them. You know, let them listen to Kelly's testimony. And then if and if, if they say, you know what, that sounds like something I would want to do, reach out to me. If you reach out to me, I will point you in the Kelly's direction. If or, you know, we're you know, we're here to help. And and we'll whether it's him or me. I'll make sure you'll get to the right person and then Kelly can make sure you get to the right place. And because we want to see nothing but you overcome your struggle and overcome your addiction because there, the light at the end of the tunnel is not always a freight train. Sometimes it is the sun to shine on your face. And you, you don't have to wait to, to what's the name of the show off the rails radio. You don't have to off wait to your life is off the rails. <laughs> Man, if, if you, if you're just beginning to struggle, you know, there's help. Um, you know, my mom used to tell me, you know, what is a drug addict? You know, you, you keep doing those drugs, you're going to end up homeless, barefoot under a bridge. But you know what? I was never barefoot. I always had shoes. There were some times I was homeless. But, you know, I just want to end the stigma, man. There are so many people that you would never have a clue. You know, I was always – I always had a good job. I ran with a good crowd. You know, I, I was a, a golfer at the country club, you know, uh, Oak Ridge. In, in Nicholasville, we played golf there uh, right by Toyota on Nicholasville. And people of every class of society struggles with addiction. Um, in my addiction, I ran into doctors who, you know, just there's, it's not just the lower class people, uh, factory workers, medical professionals. You know, addiction touches everybody. And don't wait to don't wait till all the wheels fall off, man. If if you if you're dabbling in something and it's taking over your life or or you're becoming too attached to it, reach out and get help before you get where I was. You know, unfortunately, I wasn't able to. Um, and it's kind of weird. Like all my friends, we all went through this at the same time. Uh, I remember my first first dealings with withdrawal. I didn't know what it was. And the thing is, all my buddies, we all started together, so we were all going through these symptoms. And we didn't know what it was, and we didn't talk about it because none of us really knew. Like I remember, I can clearly remember in the basement, I don't need my dress shirt put for my suit, getting ready to go to work, and I just felt like sweaty and icky and gross. I was like, man, I don't feel good today. I got just getting the flu or something. I go to work, I do a peel, I feel better. You know, that was the first steps of me starting to withdraw. I didn't know. I wasn't. I just. I was uneducated, and my buddies were experiencing the same things across town, going to their jobs, but they didn't call me like, hey, man, you know, I felt. Felt kind of rough this morning. I did a peel. I feel better. No, guys don't do that. So we were all going to do this together. And now I want to be that person saying, "Hey, you know what? If you're dealing with this, call me, reach out to me, email me, text me, whatever, Facebook Messenger. Um, tell me what you're dealing with. You know, and let's end it before you lose your family, you lose your life, you lose your car, your home. You know, you don't have to lose it all. 
you know, just the genuine want to do better, to live better. Um, you know, I was 35 years old in rehab where I learned the story of Joan and the Whale. That's embarrassing, you know, <laughs> but I, I can admit that today. You know, that's the cool thing. The people who you meet in recovery are the most honest and true people you'll ever meet. Um, but turning my life over to the Lord, getting saved, reading the Bible, creating a prayer life was huge for me. And that is what maintains my sobriety today. Um, that stuff's important to me, and I make time for it. And I tell everybody, you know, it's like, well, I'd like to read the Bible, but I don't know when, you know, I can't make time to do it. Well, I've got a foolproof plan for that. Read the Bible when you're on the toilet. That's how I started. You know, that was I just carried my Bible to the bathroom. They gave me like ten minutes a day to read the Bible. Over time, it, it grew, and I found I found ways to make time because it became interesting to me, and I wanted to, that's there's some good stuff in there, and there's something that will help any situation in life. It doesn't even have to be drugs. Any hurt, hang up, or habit. Uh, turn to the Bible. Celebrate recovery. There's there's many of them in Danville. Um, I mentioned the one at, at Ronnie Ping's church in Harrodsburg, Southside Christian Church. That is for anyone with any hurt, hang up, or habit. If you've had a trauma experience in your life. Uh, if you're just, you know, if you need a friend, if you went through a bad breakup, um, sex addiction, overeating, anything like that, that's what that's for. It's not only for drug addiction. Um, actually, most people that are there are not drug addicts. Uh, you could be a family member of a drug addict or, or anyone with any of those ailments. Come to these meetings. I and mean, It's just a support group. You know, we, we worship. We eat dinner. We we hang out. We we uh there's usually a speaker that comes, or we do a lesson, and then we break into to, to groups of men and women. We separate them. Uh, that way the men can talk about men things. Women can go talk about their thing. Um, there's healing in it, man. And it, like I said, it doesn't have to just be for addiction. It can be for anything. Uh, it brings you a little closer to God, and you'll, you'll see your life improve. And that was the thing for me. I started seeing people around me who were reading the Bible and and living out the words that are in that book, and their lives were improving. And what did I have to lose? You know, so I thought, you know what, I want, I want to be happy. I want, I want to feel good. I want good things to happen in my life. So I started doing what they were doing, and sure enough, man, it works. So if anyone's out there listening, and you're, and you're dealing with anything, hurt, habit, hang up, dealing with addiction, stress, emotional, relational, anything. Reach out. There is hope. There is help, and we do recover. That we do. All right, man. Well, I do want to say this because it's about time to wrap up. Um, I do want to say, Kelly, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day and coming and you know talking to my listeners and educating my listeners on the struggle that is addiction. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, I just hope, man, one person. If we, if one person out there listening tonight. Uh, if this helps them or helps them understand addiction or, you know, one person's all it takes, man. That makes it worth it. That, that's part of, of my me maintaining my sobriety is, is reaching out to people and helping them. And I hope someone took something from it. I hope we didn't bore them to death. Uh, Tom, I, I, I'll be keeping your family in my prayers, man. And I wish the best for your grandfather. I think it's very awesome you, you did this dedication show for him. I, I'm sure he's, he'd be very proud right now. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All righty. So I've got your number because where I've got caller ID. Um, if anybody out there needs to speak to Kelly as far as you know an issue with with addiction or whatnot, 
contacted me. I'm pretty sure Kelly won't mind if I give you their number. And Not at all. And he'll do the best he can to get you some help. Kelly, uh, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up here, man. Thank you, sir, and I hope to talk to you soon. All right, thanks, buddy. See you. God All bless. Right. All right, that was Kelly Boston with uh, with his story. Um, man, his story was very moving. Um, again, if you want to if you want to have somebody take a listen to this that wasn't able to listen tonight that you know is going through something similar, you can go to BlogTalkRadio.com. Just put in Kelly Boston in the search bar. It will take you straight to this episode. You can download it from there. Um, I want to plug my sponsor real quick, Color Elbow Wrestling, the wrestling brand. You can go on their website, which is Collar XL or Collar and it's not Collar X. I said it wrong earlier in the show. It's Collar and Elbow Brand.com. Man, they've got a bunch of cool shirts. I know they're getting ready to roll out some fall shirts. Um, they've got some stickers, they've got hats. You name it, they've got it. If you're a fan of professional wrestling, even if you aren't, they've got really, you know, comfortable shirts at a really low price. Go on there, use your promo code WING, capital Y-A-B, all capital letters. Save 10% off your order, and it throws back a little bit of money to help me keep this show on the air. Because while this show is free for you, unfortunately ain't free for me to do. So, you know, I could do it for free, but it's only like a 30 minutes at a time. So go on to Collar, Collar X Elbow. I'm working on some other sponsors here. I've got some that I'm waiting to hear back from that I reached out to today that they're going to sponsor our show as well. And, again, it is wrestling-related. And speaking of which, I know some people out there are like, but, Tom, this is supposed to be a wrestling podcast. Where's my wrestling? Well, next week, Wednesday at 7.30 p.m., Trash Can Graham is going to be on the show. We're going to talk about his career. We're going to talk about some funny road stories. Uh, we're going to talk about the first night I met him, and the first night I met him, I could have swore him and his partner, Frank, was going to kill me when I looked at him in the ring. Um, big old boy, big old boy. Frank is a big old boy, too. Uh, the week after that, on September 20th, we got lover boy Brock Landers. He's going to be on the show. He's going to talk. We're going to do some wrestling. Um, we're going to talk about Collar Elbow because both him and Trash Can Graham are sponsored through Collar Elbow. Um, so, again, if you have any questions for me as far as Kelly Boston goes, you need help, reach out to me. I've got his number. I'll send it to you. Make sure you get it. Make sure he puts you on the path to, to, to recovery. Um, again, I want to thank everybody for their heartfelt wishes, wishes about my grandfather. Um, next week, I hope to provide some kind of – I will definitely be providing some kind of update um, if you don't see it on my personal Facebook. I don't really talk about my grandfather a lot on the off-the-rails post. But if you are on my Facebook and are a friend of mine on there, um, I'm, I'm updating about every other day as I find stuff out. I usually let, let it rest with the family before I post about it. I try to anyway. Um, just keep him in your thoughts and prayers. And uh, I'm going to leave you with another song again. This one is just, it's a song that we played last week that I had it set in here. We're going to go off the air with uh, Words as Weapons by Caesar. Thank you, and we'll see you next week at Off the Rails Radio.